This morning and evening, we've been looking at two passages that you might say are foundations for following Jesus. Jesus has just predicted his death in chapter 9. He has set his face to Jerusalem and die, and now he's instructing his disciples on how to follow him. And many of you will have no doubt seen massive foundations built when any of these skyscrapers around here um, um, are built. Deep, deep, deep foundations are necessary. And Jesus is giving deep foundations for following him. Foundations that will last even after he has died, even after he's risen, even after he's ascended into heaven. This morning we saw um, that foundation of listening to him and his word. And now we're looking at this evening speaking to him in prayer. Now, I've been told as a preacher that if you want people to feel challenged, um, then it's always good to preach on prayer. I think it's probably more accurate to say if you want people to feel discouraged um, and feel maybe a bit depressed, then you should preach on prayer. Because while we all know that while, while we all know that prayer is important, I think many of us and well, most of us will realize and know that we don't pray as we ought you might have heard a preacher maybe um, quote how in 16th century, the 16th century reformer Martin Luther was asked what his plans were for the following day. And he replied, work, work from early until late. In fact, I have so much to do, I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. And the preacher might push home that if only you and I would do the same thing, we would reap the spiritual benefits. And now in, in some ways, that's, that's true. And um, that kind of exhortation comes from the good intentions of wanting us to be more determined to pray, to be more persistent, um, to, to follow those good examples and patterns. However, I don't know about you, but sometimes I can find that kind of thing disheartening. It can feel, it, we look at our own prayer lives and we feel a bit rubbish in comparison. It feels unattainable, an unattainable standard. Maybe that's just me, but I suspect it isn't. We all know we need to pray. And what we need sometimes, though, is not just a reminder of how much we should be praying, but an encouragement to just do what we know is good. An encouragement, a reminder of the privilege of prayer. And so what we're going to seek to do this evening, um, there's so much in this passage. This is what we're going to seek to do this evening is to answer the simple question, why pray? I hope that will be an encouragement to us to continue in prayer. First of all, then, why pray? We pray because we can, not just because we must. And I think that's a really important distinction to make at the start. Um, we pray because we can, not just because uh, we must. If prayer is simply spoken about as something that we must do, it can very easily become a job and a burden rather than an awesome privilege of being able to speak to the God who is Lord of all, who has created us, to whom we can have access as a father. It becomes something that we must do rather than we can do. A wonderful opportunity. Now we won't, as I said, have detail to look through the Lord's Prayer in detail. I'm sure you've uh, maybe heard series and sermon series on it before, but I want to just pick out one thing that it does tell us, first of all, about why we can pray. The Lord's Prayer emphasizes at the start that we can pray by showing us the privilege and access that we can have to God. 11 verse 2, Jesus says, when you pray, say, Father. When Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, he encourages them to use the same words to address God that he does, Father. 
In the chapter before, if you were to flick over to Luke chapter 10, verse 42, it's just on the other um, side of the page. When Jesus is praying, he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. And if you were to later on, maybe flick over to Luke chapter 22, verse 42, you'd find that when Jesus prays just before his arrest, he's, he begins with the words, Father. In fact, if you were to trace Jesus' prayers all through the Gospels, you'd find that every single time he speaks to God in prayer, he calls him Father. I say that every time, though, except, except once, which we'll come back to. Jesus tells his disciples to pray Father because they're to have the same relationship with God that he has with God as Father. The words match the relationship. I once illustrated this in a children's talk with a picture of of JFK sitting at the Resolute desk in the Oval Office. It's quite a famous picture. I don't know whether you've seen it. Um, He's sitting there at the desk, very famous desk, famous room, most powerful person in the world probably at that time. And peeking out from under his desk is JFK Jr. Um, Maybe not, I was going to say not a very inventive name, but then I've just come down from Lewis where everyone's called Donald or Angus or something like that. But anyway, here you have the most powerful man in the world who everyone else has to, um, you know, it'd be pretty hard to get an audience with the president. Not anyone can just walk in there and decide to have a chat. But his son just has to peek his head up from under the desk. He doesn't have to call his dad Mr. President. He can just say dad or daddy, whatever he would have called him. That's the kind of access the son of the president had and God's and Jesus is saying, how much more? That's how much more do we have that kind of access to God, our Father? No one in the White House could call the president Dad. No one had that relationship. Jesus is saying, you have through me, you have that relationship with God, so that you too can call Him Father, just as I do. That privilege, that access. Early on in chapter. 10 as well, Jesus says, no one knows who the father is except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. And Jesus reveals the father through his life and his death and his resurrection. If we want to know what God is like, we can read um, God's law. God's law shows us his character, shows us his heart in what he loves and what he doesn't love. We can read about all the things that God has done through the Old Testament, his mighty deeds and his works. But ultimately, we should look at Jesus. Jesus doesn't show us a different God. Rather, it's like the lights are turned on as Jesus comes on the scene. Everything that was um, in shadow, um, all the shadows and shapes of God's character that are there in the Old Testament come up in technicolor, are lit up as Jesus Christ comes on the scene. Jesus not only reveals the Father, but he gives us access to the Father through his death and resurrection. You may know because of our sin, because of our rebellion against God by nature, we don't have that kind of access. Some people um, will think that everyone gets to call God Father. That's not true. By nature, none of us get to call God Father because we've rebelled against God. We've rejected him as king. Naturally, none of us can call him father. None of us have that familial right. I said that there was only one time that Jesus doesn't address God as father when he prayed. And that one time was when Jesus hung dying on the cross. Because there Jesus bore the sins. He bore the rebellion. He bore the punishment for the people who had rejected God. People like you and me. 
those who would trust in him. There he bore the sins of his people and he faced God's wrath, the wrath that we deserve, separation from God. On the cross, he didn't cry out, my father, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he did that so that we can call God father. So that the way, way to heaven, the way that access to the heavenly throne room could be opened up and we could have that privilege and that access. And when we trust in Jesus, his death in our place, we have the access that he does. He takes our sin. He takes the punishment we deserve. And instead, he gives us his righteousness, his access, his sonship, that adoption as children of God. It's a privilege then to be able to call God Father. It's not a, it's not a, a default that humanity has. It's a privilege. Only those who receive Christ by faith have the access to call God Father. And as a privilege to call God Father, it's foundational for the rest of the Lord's Prayer. You can, as I said, we don't have to have time to go through it in detail. But you can see each of those, um, each of those requests, give us each day our daily bread. That We have to read each of those requests under the umbrella of Father. These are requests that are not just given, um, thrown out there in a, at a hope that some deity will listen to that request to provide, that request to forgive, that request to protect and lead us not into temptation. Those, all of each one of those petitions is given to a father who loves, who cares, who we have complete access through, through the Lord Jesus Christ, if we're trusting in him. God is our, through Jesus Christ, God is our provider, our protector, our deliverer. We pray to God because he, we can trust that he'll truly satisfy our needs. Well, that brings us to our next point, though. We pray. Why pray? Well, we second, we pray because God is dependable and reliable. All these requests we can cast out, we can bring to God because he's dependable, our second point, and not unreliable. And having taught his disciples to pray, our Father, Jesus tells them the parable just to show them that point. Um, the, the parables to show that you can trust God to hear your prayers and answer. And you might call it the parable of the unreliable neighbor. Um, I don't know whether you've ever had anyone come to your house at a, an unideal time. Maybe you've just got up in the morning and you're in your dressing gown. Uh, maybe it's quite late at night. You're just, the doors are locked. You're ready to go to bed. Maybe you're just about to sit down to dinner. Um, there's lots of times when it can be unideal to um, have guests come in. But for some reason, this man um, was late in this parable. This man is coming at about midnight. Um, maybe the tra- there was a train star strike. Maybe his car had broken down. So he's late getting to his friend's house. Now, here in London, I imagine there's no problem if someone arrives late and you need food. Um, there are shops that are open 24-7. You can just pop around the corner, um, grab something to eat. Um, the nearest takeaway is probably open till what? I don't know how late. Very late anyway. Um, but... Where on the Isle of Lewis, where I'm normally living, it gets a bit harder. Um, it's about 35 minutes to get to the nearest shop, as in literally across the island. And that definitely won't be open until midnight. So I, I can feel a little bit about what this guy's situation is. Um, but even then, I could take out a pizza from the oven. I could take some leftovers out from the fridge. 2,000 years ago, that wasn't the case. Um, people would have literally cooked their bread for each day on that day. So maybe with the wages they had the day before. 
And so when this guy, when this man's friend arrives um, and he has no food to set before him, there's a real problem. Um, there's a real honor-shame issue here. You need to set food before your guest. He's in trouble. And so he goes to his friend's house, and he's sure that his friend would provide. Um, when it says, um, what friend would say, oh, don't bother me, it's a question. Of course your friend's not going to say that. Of course a good friend isn't going to say, I'm in bed. Um, I, I don't want anything to do with you. The point is that even um, a friend who is... Um, even a friend who is, uh, has already gone to bed, who's already locked his doors, even that friend would surely help him. Um, it's worth saying that, um, yeah, even this, even this friend, even because of his impudence, because of the, the shame associated it, would rise and help him with his needs. Um, Jesus' argument then is one of contrast. If your unreliable grumpy neighbor um, would get up in the middle of the night, to give you a few loaves. How much more will God hear you when you pray? He says, I tell you, ask him. So verse nine, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. The main point of that, these verses is clear. God says, pray. God answers prayer. Jesus doesn't say, knock, it's worth a shot. Um, ask, and perhaps, um, hopefully, God won't be busy. And, and seek, and maybe, you know, if you, if, you, if you seek enough, if you knock loud enough, God might hear you. He says, ask, and you'll be given. Seek, and you'll find. We pray to a God who hears, who answers. That point is brilliantly illustrated in the Old Testament in the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. I don't know whether you know it. Um, Elijah challenges these um, false prophets to a contest to see whose God is the real one. And the challenge is simple. Um, Elijah and the prophets, they're each to make this pile of stones, put some wood on top, stick a sacrifice on top. And the God who is the real God will pour down fire from heaven when they pray to him. And so the prophets of Baal go first and they dance around and they cut themselves and they shriek and shout and as they dance. But there's no, no fire comes from heaven. And Elijah decides to taunt them a bit. He says, well, maybe your God is, has gone traveling. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's on the toilet. And I love telling this story to kids because they can't believe that's actually in the Bible. That Elijah's teasing them that their God might actually be on the toilet and that's why he's not listening. And then Elijah prays a simple prayer to God. The prophets of Baal get no response. But Elijah prays once, and immediately God sends down fire from heaven that consumes the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and even this, the water that Elijah's poured on top of it just to make it more difficult. We don't pray to a God who is an unreliable, grumpy neighbor, or someone who takes a nap, or someone who has a day off, and where it's a, hmm, maybe God will respond. Jesus says, I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. However, the fact that God always hears our prayers doesn't mean we'll always get an immediate answer. It doesn't mean we'll always get the answer we want. God isn't a vending machine. God is sovereign. I think sometimes we think, well, surely if God always answers prayer, that means he will give me exactly what I want. That is, that is to rob God of his, of his godness, if I could put it that way. God's in charge. He's sovereign. That means 
he will answer our prayers according to his will, according to his um, according to his command, according to his law, according to what he wants to do. We can't twist God's arm by praying enough, by um, if we send up a certain number of prayers kind of thing, God will answer. Now, that doesn't take away from the fact that we should be persistent in prayer, that we should um, be hopeful in prayer. In um, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, Paul says, pray without ceasing. Prayer is important. God uses the prayers of his people to work. Um, He has for centuries. He has for millennia. Um, God has brought the gospel through to the world through the prayers of his people. He always hears his people's prayers. That doesn't necessarily mean he always answers is exactly how we expect. And there'll be times for all of us when God doesn't answer immediately when God doesn't answer exactly as how we were hoping for. And it's at these times when I think it's really important that we um, remember the lesson of the second half of this parable or the second parable in this passage, which is our third point. We pray because God is not evil, but because he's generous. Let me read again from verse 11. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, well, instead of a fish, give him a serpent or if he asks for an egg we'll give him a scorpion if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children how much more will the heavenly father give the holy spirit to those who ask him if the last parable was to assure us that god does answer here and answer prayer this one is to reassure us that his answers are good even if that answer is silence even if that answer isn't doing something exactly as we want you know, to, we could um, modernize this um, parable maybe. You know, what father, if a child asks him for a cream egg, is going to take that cream egg, um, unwrap it carefully, eat the cream egg, put a rock inside and wrap it up and give that back to their child. I mean, it might seem like a, might seem like a funny prank at one point, but um, no father's going to do that. And especially this takes it, Jesus' parable takes it a step further. It's not just um, a prank. This is And what father is going to give a scorpion or a snake to their child? That's not just funny. That's dangerous. The child asks for something that's going to nourish them, something that's good, and instead give them something that will do harm. And sometimes that's how we can think about God. We can think that actually when God responds, he's just out to get us. It's very easily to, if God doesn't answer our prayers the way we think, we think, well, God is just giving us scorpions and snakes. God's, God's answers to prayer, we can, we can see the hard things that come our way. And we can act like God is that kind of father, the kind of father who gives scorpions and snakes rather than the good father. Now, there are some bad fathers. Maybe some of you may have had experience of a bad father. Some of you may have have been bad fathers at times. But Jesus' argument is one of the lesser to the greater again. If human fathers with all their flaws give their child good things, how much more will your perfect, loving, heavenly father give good gifts? And that's a reassuring thing to remember. We may not always understand how God answers prayer, but we can always be reassured that his answer is good. We can be reassured that he does give good things. 
While we recognize that all good things come from God, Jesus has one special gift in mind. Not winning the lottery, not finding a life partner, not um, getting the perfect job or a miraculous recovery from health. It's the good gift of the Spirit. And it's very easy to, to skip over those words and to think, I don't know, or to, 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 to just shrug through them. And that's probably because we don't quite appreciate what a good gift the Holy Spirit is to those who ask them. Why is the Spirit such a good gift? Let me just give a quickly give you a quick whistle-stop tour of um, God's underrated gift. First of all, it's regeneration. God, when God gives his Holy Spirit into people's lives, the Spirit begins his work of regeneration. You see, by nature, we, the Bible says we're all dead in our sins. We're unresponsive. We're deaf. We're blind. We can't hear God's word. We can't even respond. There's no way in which we can save ourselves. But when God breathes his spirit into our lives, it is like dead bones coming back to life, as uh, is, is illustrated in Ezekiel. The spirit makes us alive and turns our hearts to God. That's the work of regeneration. And having brought us to Christ, the spirit then begins us to change us to be more like him. That's the work of sanctification. If we're trusting in Christ, God calls us to put off sin, to put on Christ-likeness. And we can't do that on our own. You'll know yourself how difficult it is to, to strain, to, to, to pursue Christ-likeness, to seek to become more like Christ. We need God's help. And that's that work of sanctification as God polishes us by his word, as he increasingly makes us reflect the image of his son. The Christian life, though, is, of course, hard. We can be filled by doubts. We can be beaten down by suffering, which brings us to the Spirit's third work, witness. And Romans 6, 8 verse 16 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. When we see our sin, we can be tempted to despair. We can be tempted to think, what, what am I even doing here? Am I even saved? Does God really love me? Spirit witnesses are with our spirit, Paul tells us, to remind us that we are children of God. Sometimes prayer is the, the last thing that we think we can do when we see our sin. The spirit witnesses with our spirit to remind us as children of God, we can pray to God as father every bit as much as we can when we're having our best day. Our status as children of God doesn't change. That access to God doesn't change because that access comes through Christ, not through any of our own efforts. And there are times of God when, um, sorry, times of life when it can feel so black that we don't have words to call out to God. And Paul tells us the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And there are times when we also will feel quite lost maybe due to our sin, maybe due to our circumstances, which brings us to the Spirit's fourth work. And I love this. It's the work of securing us. In Ephesians 1, 13 to 14, Paul writes this. In him, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession, possession of it to the praise of his glory. I love that double security. We're sealed, we're sealed for our inheritance and the inheritance is sealed, sealed or guaranteed for us. 
You know, in Christ, God's opinion of us will never change. He doesn't just save us and say, okay, now do your best, do it alone, see if you can get to the celestial city, which is sometimes um, what Pilgrim's Progress can feel like. No, there's, there's a package deal, regeneration to glorification. God secures it all in Christ. Those who, those who belong to Christ, he will never let go. He secures us for our inheritance. He secures that inheritance for us all through his spirit. God is not evil. He's a father who delights to give good gifts to his children. And most, he gave his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for us, who rose from the dead, who sends his spirit into his, into his people to give them life, to grow them in life, to grow them like him, to secure them for the new creation. We pray not because we must, but because we can. We pray because God is not unreliable, but dependable. We pray because God is not evil, but is a good and generous heavenly father. In other words, God our father is accessible, dependable, and good. What a privilege then we have that we can speak to God whenever we want. Not just that we must, but we can. And so... When we pray, we grow in relationship with God. We speak to our Heavenly Father. And it's when we pray together as a church, whether it's in a prayer meeting or other times, we grow closer to one another as children of God. And I want to just end by encouraging you the value of praying together. Um, Jesus teaches his disciples about prayer because they see him pray and say, Lord, teach us to pray. And we should pray in private as Jesus did. We also should pray together as the people of God. Um, not just in, we encourage others with our prayers. We also build one another up with our prayers. I was just back in, in Wales where I spent my secondary school, um, where my family still are, um, which was quite significant in me, in my growth, in my, yeah, in my growth as a Christian. And I remember as a teenager um, being encouraged, dragged, I don't know, going along to prayer meeting anyway, and I was always groaned because I didn't want to go. I just thought, oh, it's going to be boring and long. And what well, one thing that always struck me when I was there was the prayerfulness. Um, not just that people were praying, but that they would pray through every single one of us young people during that prayer meeting. And there were quite a lot of us at that time. Maybe there was a bit of a baby boom. Um, but they would always be praying for us. And they'd be praying not just that we would um, be happy or that we would get a good place in university, but they were praying that we would be saved. They would be praying that we would be grow as believers. And I went back and I visited um, just this past week, and they were doing the same thing. <laughs> I think some of us, I think I still got to mention, maybe because I was back there, but they were still praying through all of these young people. And let me tell you, it, it has an effect. When you hear people praying for you, when even when you go off to university and go off and work and you know that people are still praying for you, that has an effect, not just in, not just in knowing the power of prayer, but God also used that. Um, the numbers, quite a number of us who have grown up in that church, who, um, who are, are still walking with the Lord, a number of us who have gone into ministry, God uses prayer. Prayer is powerful. Can I encourage you to keep praying, to be persistent in prayer? I know for you with a transient congregation, so many people you pray with will move, pray for and pray with will move on in three years time. But you have no idea 
how God will use those prayers. Use that wonderful access that we have to a heavenly father to pray, to pray together, to encourage one another with your prayers. And don't be discouraged. Even when you might be people you pray for for years, for decades who don't know Christ. You don't know what God will do. You don't know what he can do. He's the one who can raise people from dead to, from death to life. Of course, he can bring people back to him, bring people to know him. We're going to come now to God in prayer. We're going to um, thank him for that access and pray that he would continue to give us confidence in prayer. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that while you could while you could fulfill your purposes in this world without us, you choose to use us. And not just us, not just our energies and our actions and our service, but you choose to use our prayers. You could get everything done without making us part of the conversation, Lord, but you, you ask us to pray to you. You call us to come to you. You rejoice when we do. And so, Lord, we pray that we would, uh, you'd cause us to delight more and more in you, uh, to long to speak to you. And Lord, we ask that you would make this church a, a prayerful church, uh, a church that is knit together with one another through that a special communion of, with God in prayer, a church that is that grows in love and witness for those around through praying for those um, who surround us. And Lord, we pray um, that you'd give the people more and more encouragement and confidence in coming to you, whether they feel laden down with sin, whether they feel discouraged, and that you'd grow each one of us in loving you, knowing you, and speaking to you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.